to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other <coughs> Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were more were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answers and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. All right, so they bring up the Galilean massacre, and Jesus brings up this tower event. Uh, we know neither of these historically, but, you know, whoever these Galileans were, whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices, that's Pilate. You know, it's in character for him, even if though we don't know specifically what the incident involved. Clearly, he'd killed some Galileans. And, uh, you know, we don't know about the tower, but you can imagine a tower falling and killing some people. And I don't know what they expected when they brought up to Jesus this deal with the Galileans the Pilate killed. Were they looking for some kind of political statement on his part, some show of indignation? You know, they wanted his commentary. You know, isn't that what they do with the political figures? You know, well, would you make a comment on this? You know, what's your opinion on that? And so forth. You know, they've always got a microphone stuck in their mouth and, uh, you know, trying to find out what they think about this or that, probably trying to find, get catch them saying something stupid so they can, you know, make something out of, of it. You know, kind of what they were doing with Jesus as well. But Jesus... He doesn't offer some political commentary. He doesn't, you know, lament. He turns this into a conversation about what they needed. Jesus did that a lot. In fact, you just go back through these last few chapters. Like in 12.13 when the guy wanted Jesus to divide the inheritance. Or back in 11.37 when the Pharisee was surprised Jesus hadn't washed his hands. And back in 11.27 when the woman says... You know, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And back in 1017, when the 70 were shocked that the demons were subject to them, Jesus takes lots of these statements of people in the crowd or whoever it was and makes a spiritual application. Jesus, Jesus did that a lot. You know, I mean, he, he just, everything for Jesus is an opportunity for a spiritual conversation. Have you noticed that? I mean, remember, like, the woman comes to the well and he asks for water and she makes some comment on, yeah, you don't want us until you need us. Uh, you know, and Jesus is like, well, actually, if you knew who I was, <laughs> I'd give you water that you'd never have to throw. I mean, I would never have seen an opportunity in that. But Jesus, every interaction, it seems like he, he can, you know, he, he can bring a spiritual lesson. Hey, somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know, you hear about that incident where, you know, terrorist bombing and, you know, 13 people were killed in, you know, whatever place. Yeah, that's bad, isn't it? we got to watch those terrorists. You know, hope they don't come here or whatever. Jesus would say, well, 
You know, do you think that those guys were greater sinners than all the others because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. We're all doomed unless we repent. So Jesus turns this into a whole different thing. You know, this is a reality <laughs> check. You know, and we need to use this to really uh, think about our life before God. Really, the question is not what Pilate did, but what God will do with all sinners. And so he kind of gives these events a moral. And he says, you know, a, a disaster like that doesn't necessarily mean those people are worse sinners than other people. Everybody's going to die. Have you ever thought about that? You know, we are really funny about some things. You know, I understand that atrocities are terrible. And they're terrible, especially if it affects us. Uh, but nobody's getting out of this world alive. If it's not that, it'll be something else. We will die. And, and we get all, you know, really concerned about that. But the thing we really need to do is prepare for it. I think that's the thing. It's, 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 you know, sad that there are terrible events in the world. But, but all of us are going to die. All of us are going to face the Lord. So instead of thinking, oh, isn't that terrible what happened to them? We need to think about, isn't it going to be terrible what's going to happen to us unless we repent? Every calamity is a call for everyone to repent. Um, and, and if it hadn't happened to us yet, it will if we don't repent. And it'll be worse than dying. We'll have to meet the Lord unprepared. So I really think it's interesting how Jesus just is able to work his point into any comment, any question, any discussion. He, he just looks like everything that's said, he immediately thinks of a spiritual application. That's his passion. That's his mission. Um, thoughts and comments. Is this also possibly something that they've been talking about, like maybe one of Job's friends that came to Job and said, you did wrong because you were punished? Maybe. Is that part of maybe why it came up, that they were viewing themselves as righteous because maybe things were going well and bad for these people because... That would have been a typical thing they would have thought back then, so it could be. And Jesus would be saying even more specifically, you know, don't you think you're in better shape than they are? You know, <laughs> same thing will happen to you or worse. So where was he when he was doing this? I don't know. Because he mentioned those in Galilee and those men in Jerusalem. I was wondering if he was there. Yeah. I, I don't, I can't figure out. I mean, Jesus, there's several passages here where he's going to Jerusalem, but I don't know if that means this whole section is one trip to Jerusalem. You can look back at 951, and he was approaching, uh, he was about, to, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And then you look at 1322, and he was proceeding on his way to Jerusalem there. And then there's another one somewhere, uh, I don't remember exactly where, where he's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, 1911, he was near Jerusalem. So if possible, we're intended to see everything from the end of 9 <coughs> to 19 as one big long trip to Jerusalem. But I think it's also possible he comes to Jerusalem at different times. So I'm not really sure if we can do much with this. I also don't know if these are in chronological order. So a lot of people would take this as the, the journey to Jerusalem. But I think we might be reading more into that than what we really know when we say that. Then you've got this story about the fig tree. The guy kept looking for fruit on it, and it didn't have any. 
And so he decides, well, cut it down. You know, I don't need it. I mean, it's just occupying space, and there's no value. You know, I mean, if you have a fruit tree, you have it to bear fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, then what's the use of having it? Cut it down and plant something else. But uh, the uh, the people who's taking care of the vineyard uh, said, let it alone, sir, for this year, too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. Give it one more year's chance. I'll really take good care of it, and let's see if we can get it produced. And I, <coughs> so that's what he does. Now, given the tree's record, I don't know if there's a lot of hope that it can meet that year, year deadline. But at least the Lord here of the fig tree is very merciful, giving giving an extra chance. And and maybe this is the idea of Jesus giving them an extra chance. You know, there's another year or whatever uh, before the judgment comes down on them. Um, but but <laughs> you know the thing that would be bad is to be that fig tree and assume that oh the Lord is fine uh, with with me because He hasn't punished me yet. The Lord's mercy does not mean complacency. It just means he's really merciful and he's really takes a while before he cuts the tree down. He gives it every chance to succeed. But he he doesn't forget. You know, he will cut that tree down by next year if it hasn't borne fruit. There comes a last chance. There comes a last year. You might be in your last year. This may might be it. But for everybody, there'll be a last year. Thoughts and comments. The three years made me think of Jesus' ministry being three years long, and I didn't know if there was any kind of correlation there that there hadn't, you know, there hadn't produced like the right kind of fruit in that time, and so give it just a little longer, or if I'm just making random connections again. Well. Here's the challenge with that. We really don't know that Jesus' ministry was three years long. We say that assuming that you've got four Passovers in John. We know you got three. John 2, John 6, John 19. And Jesus was doing some things before that first one. Last one was when he died. So we know his ministry had to at least cover two years and something. Because you got three Passovers, you know, figure that out. Time in between, that's just two and a little bit in front. Okay, so it's at least a little over two years. Um, the, a lot of people think that the feast in chapter five of John was also a Passover. If it was, then his ministry has to be at least three years in the part. But we don't know for sure that it was. It doesn't say it was a Passover. So if it wasn't, it could have just been two years in the part. Or it could be there were other Passovers that aren't recorded, and it could have been longer. Now. Was Jesus' ministry 50 years long? There's no way. We cannot fit that in with the chronology or anything close to that. Uh, so, if it wasn't three years, we're not saying it was 23. It wasn't that. You know, uh, and it had to have been at least over two by those three Passovers we've been nailed down. So it was somewhere between two and a little bit, and I don't know what the outer limit would be, but there would be one. You know, it's pretty clear Jesus, you know was still a baby or a small child when Herod the Great died. He died in 4 B.C. And you've got to get the crucifixion in at least by 33, 34, 35. 
I mean, you know, there's hardly any possibility Jesus was over 40 when he was crucified because the chronology just won't work with other things you've got in the book of Acts. And we know he's about 30 when he started his ministry, Luke 3. So I'd say, you know, 8 or 10 years is probably really stretching it. Maybe you'd have room for 8. But, I mean, I think it's unlikely that it's that long. I wouldn't be surprised if it was 2, 3, 4, 5, something like that. But, but as far as I can see, you know, we take something that we have an idea about based upon some guesses, and then it becomes kind of the fixed point. I think it shouldn't be the fixed point. I think that it is a, a, you know, conjecture on our part, not a totally unfounded one, but not a solid one. You didn't really want all that, but I gave it to you anyway. So. <laughs> Bonus material. Well, I, I, th- I just, I, you know, I don't like these uh, assumptions. I think we need to question and say, all right, if it's an assumption, let's make sure we know it's an assumption. Maybe it's right, but it's not nailed down. If it's nailed down, then it's then then let's say that. I think sometimes we confuse things that are nailed down with things that are just good educated guesses, and we kind of need to make sure we understand this is just an educated guess. There's nowhere in the New Testament that says it was a three year ministry. All right, anything else? All right, how about 10 to 17? He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had had sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from his stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for eighteen long years, should she not be released from this bond on the Sabbath? And he said to all, he said this, all his opponents were and as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Okay. So here you see Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And there's wo- this woman who's, it's like she's got scoliosis or something. She's all bent over, but it's actually caused by a demon. You know, I mean, some uh, conditions uh, were caused by demons in some cases. And uh, hers was... She'd be at 18 years like that. She couldn't straighten up. You know, we see some people almost like that uh, that are just so stooped over and they can't stand up erect and it's just painful to watch sometimes. Um, that's her situation. So he said, woman, you're freed from your sickness. Laid his hands on her and all of a sudden she stood upright. That's incredible. You know, wow. With Jesus... No case is incurable, no matter how long we've been in the bondage. It may be 18 years, Jesus cures it just like that. So that's really incredible. But the synagogue official doesn't like it. Why not? It was a Sabbath. Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. And so he doesn't rebuke Jesus, though. Who does he turn to and yell at? The crowd. Saying... You've got six days to be healed. Come then. Don't come for healing on the Sabbath. Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? 
Just come any other day and get your crooked backs fixed. <laughs> As, As if that's been happening every day. Exactly. Like, what if she had come back the next day? Here <laughs> <laughs> <Where> I am. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and isn't that cowardly? Why doesn't he just confront Jesus? <laughs> you know, he'd rather confront the crowd. He doesn't feel as intimidated by them. Uh, but he thought Jesus was too uh, formidable to confront directly. Well, so, I mean, also, if is. Jesus was able to heal a bad back, he could also cause a bad back <laughs> as well. <laughs> It'd be a little careful. You might transfer the problem with the back. <laughs> They're also trying to get the crowd to turn against Jesus. So they're addressing that yeah. side of it. Don't encourage him to heal. So Jesus' answer is, you hypocrites, on the Sabbath would you not untie an ox or a donkey from the stall and lead them to water? And here's this woman who's been bound for 18 long years by Satan. Should she not be released from this bond on the Sabbath day? You would take your dumb animal and untie them. She's a daughter of Abraham. You'd loose them from the stall. I'm loosing her from this Satan-caused disease. You know, you wouldn't even make your animal wait a few hours to untie him and drink. She's been bound for 18 years. You deny her something that you give to your own animals. We are so unfair and unjust sometimes. Partially. It's like, wow. It, we can be with our kids, with our relatives, with our friends, or whatever. It's a double standard. You see that. You know, every once in a while. You know, I've seen situations where, like, there were elders in the church that when somebody else's kids messed up, They'd really come down on his own kids and sweep it under the rug. Things like that. You know, shouldn't be. We need to be fair and just. And they weren't. But now, Jesus said, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As if there was something about the Sabbath day that made it the time that she should be released from that bond. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, he talks about the Sabbath day. And he says, you shall remember that you were slave in the land of Egypt. That's connected with the Sabbath day. And the Lord brought you out, and therefore the Lord commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In part, the Sabbath day commemorated their being released from Egyptian bondage. In fact, in in Leviticus 26.13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves, and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. (laughs) And so, the Sabbath reminding of the freedom from Egyptian bondage, where they could walk erect, was the appropriate day for this woman to be released from her bondage and walk erect. So I think Jesus is not just saying the Sabbath is an okay day for this. I think he's saying the Sabbath is precisely the day that she should be released from this bond and made to walk erect. What was that reference again? Uh, I, I reference Deuteronomy 5, 14, and 15, and then Leviticus 26, 13. That's really cool. And everybody, all his opponents were humiliated. The whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things done in him. 
you know, <laughs> he's shown up his enemies, and everybody's like, wow, isn't this crazy? This is incredible. Thoughts and comments on all that. So, there is nothing wrong with untying your ox or donkey and taking it to get a drink on the Sabbath. I agree. Okay. And even, obviously, even in their mind, their law. Yeah, they thought it was fine too, and I think it was. Okay. But it wasn't fine to untie her from her bondage to Satan these 18 long years on the Sabbath day. Okay. But I think that they couldn't haul water to the donkey. They had to take the donkey to the water. Right. In all likelihood. Okay. And I think it's neat that it's verse 13. So she was made a wreck, and what's the first thing she does? She begins glorifying God. Yeah, amen. So she had the right. She had the right response then, and then the crowd has the right response later on. <coughs> it's just this synagogue official who's not... Not with the program. <laughs> Can we say for certain that an illness or something like that is a demon, or is that... Is, is that always... Is, maybe is that always the case? No. Or is that... Because there are, or there are times when he cured sicknesses and cast out demons from different people. You know, the sick people he healed, the demon-possessed he cast out the demons. So there are times when sicknesses are not attributed to demons. There are times when they are. I assume you have to be Jesus to know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few I suspect, but... Uh, <laughs> and in this case, it's whom Satan has bound, that's what where you get the demon yeah. connection. Is yeah, it's, it's <laughs> a sickness caused by a spirit in verse 11. Okay. So I assume oh, that. There we go, yes. Other questions or comments? Go on. So does that mean that some diseases could be demons? Well, at least at this time, some of the diseases were caused by demons, yes. Oh, I don't know if demons have diseases today or not. We'll get back here. All right. Well, I won't be here next week, no matter what, because we've got our gospel meeting. So. You having a fever?